so we're continuing through the Epiphany season. <coughs> Epiphany being the Sunday, uh, as you may know, where we reflected on the wise men, the magi, the three kings coming to give their gifts to Jesus and to worship him, to meet with him. And that's what gives us the word Epiphany, this sense of meeting with God. And so we're reflecting in this Epiphany season leading up to Lent on what it means to meet with God and who this God is that we meet with and the different things that define him, that, that set him apart. And last week we looked at meeting the God who calls. We said that God calls us, he invites us to do various things and to follow him and that has various ramifications for us and implications for us. And saying that God calls, that God invites, that God beckons also carries with it the assumption that God speaks. So that is what we're reflecting on this morning, meeting with the God who speaks. And as I prepared this, and as I stand here this morning about delivering it, I'm, I'm very aware that what I prepared is incredibly inadequate and misses out an awful lot of stuff. Um, so this is just what I was able to include in the time that I had um, and felt it good to highlight. But, but there is so much more that I could have said. So as we think about God speaking and us meeting with a God who speak, we need to consider, first of all, what it is that sets God's speaking to us apart from other things, from other words. Because our, our life our, is full of voices, whether it's the voices of other people, whether it's the voices of advertising, whether it's the voices of demands on our time, or the voices of the needs around us or in our own life. There's a lot of voices, there's a lot of words imposing themselves on us. So what is it that sets the words of God apart? So I wanted to highlight a couple of things as part of that. The first is that God's word creates, it achieves something, it does something. When we read the uh, Genesis 1 account of creation, and, and whether you think of this as literal or metaphorical, I don't want to get into that right now. The point is that, that what we read about is God's word creating. It does something. It achieves something. It's not just a word that sits there, inert and void. But God says, let the water, for example, in chapter 1, verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God's word creates, and it, it creates out of nothing. You and I create. We can write something. We can play organ or keyboard. We can paint a picture, take a photo. But, but we have to create out of what's already there. But God creates out of nothing. Makes what was not into what is. The second thing to say is that we can say that God's word heals. Let's look at Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verse 11 to 13. And I'm going to be jumping around to a number of different passages this morning. So apologies if you get a bit disorientated by the number of different things I'm referring to. Luke chapter 13. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. As Jesus, God's son, the revelation of God in flesh and bone, as Jesus speaks, as he says the word, she is healed. And that continues through God's work by the Holy Spirit through people 
So we might turn to, for instance, Acts chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Aeneas, there Peter found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. So as Peter obediently speaks the word of Jesus to the person, the person is healed. And then we can say that God's word saves. James chapter 1, verse 21. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And the word in this case, in the context that James is writing, is the gospel. The declaration of the good news of Jesus. That word spoken by God through Jesus saves. It brings us into God's presence freely. God's word creates, it heals, and it saves. And that's in contrast with what the Bible often refers to as dumb idols, which is quite a rude term, really, dumb idols. Uh, But the point is, one of the clear differences between the Judeo-Christian God and other so-called gods is that this is a God who speaks. The other gods don't speak. God's words aren't static. They do something. They get stuff done. In contrast, we read the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, where God says through the prophet, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. And then we read also about the spiritual gift of the New Testament, God speaking through people. In contrast to the dumb idols who cannot and do not and will not speak. So how does God, could I have the next slide? So how does God speak? There's much more I could have said about the words that set God's words, the things that set God's words apart. But let's think of some of the ways, and this is an incomplete list, after I'd finished last night and I was trying to get to, bed, get to sleep in bed, I was thinking, oh, I could have added that and that and that and that. And then you would have been here all morning and into the afternoon and probably into the evening as well. So here's just a few. How does God speak? He speaks primarily through Jesus. Jesus is the living word. John chapter 1, you know, I'm sure that passage well because we read it at least every Christmas. It's the final reading of our nine in the carol service and we often get it on Christmas Eve, I think it is. Oh no, Christmas Day it often turns up in the lectionary. John chapter 1, the word made flesh. He is the word. Jesus is the living word. The word, chapter 1 verse 14, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now this doesn't mean that that Jesus wasn't existing before first century Middle East, but that he took on flesh and bone in first century Middle East. And he continues to exist after he's ascended. But Jesus is the living word, which means he, and I've used this analogy before, is the living example of what this written word looks like read out, uh, lived out. And in addition to that, he is the living demonstration that God's words can be trusted. So, for example, I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to by us to the glory of God. Jesus proves that God can be trusted. Jesus proves that God's promises are worth following and that we can believe that he will keep them. Jesus proves that God is truthful. Every promise is yes and amen in God. Jesus is the living word through whom God speaks. In addition to that, God speaks through the written word, the Bible, the purpose of which is to point us to Jesus. So Jesus himself says this when he's talking to the religious teachers in John chapter 5, verse 39. He, you, he says, to the religious teachers, the Pharisees, study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The purpose of the scripture is to point us to Jesus. Scripture isn't to be venerated in and of itself because it's a good book, but it's to be honoured because it points us to Jesus. And as Jesus says to the religious rulers, if your handling and understanding of Scripture doesn't point you to me, then you're handling Scripture wrongly. You've misunderstood it. You've missed the point. Jesus is quite stark with them here. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But they testify to me and you refuse to come to me. And these are the religious people he's talking to. The scriptures are here to show us Jesus. There are lots of other ways that God's words can be heard. Through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to hunches and ideas. And that can sound a little scary. What if my hunch or my idea is a little, is wrong? Well, if it's wrong and it's not doing somebody active harm, in which case it wasn't God, then what have you lost by seeking to follow a gentle hunch? So you could think about um, Philip following the prompting of the Holy Spirit to meet with the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, in Acts chapter 8. But what does that look like for us here and now? Well, every one of us will experience this differently. Let me just give you one simple illustration. Years ago, I was working, this is a church I was working at in London as a curate. Um, and I was, trying, I was writing a sermon, I was trying to think of an illustration to show that uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the functions of the gift of the Holy Spirit to us as Christians is to help us understand that God loves us. And it's kind of a down payment, an assurance and I just thought, and there was no voice from heaven, it wasn't dramatic or super spiritual or wacky or weird, it was just, huh, how about wedding rings? Because wedding rings remind us that we're loved by the person who gave them to us, right? Yes? Yes, yes they do, yes, hello, they do. And that's a bit like the Holy Spirit, which is given to us by God to remind us that God loves us. So I just kind of slipped that in. And it wasn't dramatic, it was just a hunch. After, the ser- after I gave the sermon, I spoke with a young woman afterwards who, who was married to somebody who's not a Christian, and she felt very alone in her faith. And that morning, as she got up, had breakfast, got ready for church, going to church alone, she was just very conscious of feeling alone. And as she sat at the kitchen table having coffee, she noticed her wedding ring, and it seemed to be shining and sparkling a bit more than usual. And she thought, why am I noticing that this morning? And then she comes to church, and here's that analogy... And suddenly she remembers that she's not alone. 
and that God is with her and close to her and loves her. You see, it's a prompting of the Holy Spirit that allows somebody to hear God's words to them. And you don't have to be clergy to have that. God can speak through other people. I love Exodus chapter 18, which I know you all know off by heart, but let me just remind you. That was British sarcasm. Exodus 18, uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, visits Moses. And let me summarize chapter 18 for you. Moses is really, really stressed. He's trying to deal with all the demands of the people, the hundreds, thousands of people he's leading, and all their pleas for justice, and trying to sort out all the different dilemmas in the life of the community. And he's trying to deal with big things and small things and medium-sized things, and he's overwhelmed. And he's talking to Jethro about this, and Jethro says, Moses, for goodness sake, learn to delegate, will you? He doesn't say it quite like that. But that's essentially what he says. And he says, Moses, get some people you trust. Let them deal with the smaller stuff. And you deal with the big complex stuff that is the stuff that you need to deal with. And again, that's not a dramatic thing. It's just the common sense given by God to Jethro through which God speaks to Moses and releases Moses' burden. God speaks through other people. I have a spiritual director who I meet with roughly once a month, and she helps me understand what God is doing in my life and how God is shaping me. God can speak through her. God can speak through you, can speak through your trusted friends. God can speak through the beauty of creation, Psalm 19. This is really testing my ability to find passages quickly. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And there's so many more passages I could pick on to illustrate that. But but you know that living here. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And I know for a lot of us... Experiencing God through the beauty of the creation around us can be a profound experience. I'm not one of those people. I'm not a God in creation person. Not that I don't believe he's in creation, but it's just that that's not how I'm wired. But I know a lot of you are, and you tell me. And we can sometimes hear God's voice, and the the stillness and the beauty can speak to us. Go to the next slide, please, Rachel. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. In addition, God can speak through the arts in the broadest sense of that. Exodus chapter 35. Another part of Exodus I know you know extremely well. Uh, Exodus 35, verses 31 to 32. And God has filled him, this is a man called Bezalel, has filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. He has filled them, multiple people, with skill to do all kinds of work, as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. God gives creative gifts to people. And through those creative gifts, God can speak. That's one for me. That, that's a place that I often experience God. And it's not just through people who are Christians, because God gives his gifts to everybody, because every human being is made in the image of God. 
So for me, I, films are a particular way for me of listening to God because there's something about the way I can let a story get under my skin and through my defences and I can often hear God's voice even if the person who made it wasn't a Christian. So a particular film for me, for instance, might be a film called Pan's Labyrinth, which probably only three of you have seen, and it's in Spanish by a Mexican director. And I won't go into it, but the director is an atheist who's been deeply hurt by the church, but ironically, in this beautiful film, it's a, it's a parable of redemption and sacrifice. And it moves me profoundly and causes me to reflect on the gift of Jesus to me. And just one chord from the soundtrack can make me cry in total isolation. So now you know how to get me. God can speak through events, and you might also put creation in a similar bracket here. Think, for instance, of the star in Matthew 1, Matthew 2, leading the wise men to Jesus for epiphany. The event, something happens. And we, we, a lot of us will think this way, actually, and we might not think of it as God speaking, but if we're, for example, applying for a job, we will say, God, if you want me to have this job, open the door. If you don't, shut it. God will speak then through the opening or the shutting of that door. That's one of the things I prayed coming here, considering to take this post. God, do you want us to uproot ourselves from London to Cape Town? Well, if you're in it, please open the door. God can speak through corporate worship. Most of the psalms that we have are settings of songs that were used by the people of God to worship him. And there are other parts of the Bible that are like that. So for instance, we think of Philippians chapter 2, which is one of my favourite passages of scripture. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know that one. That was almost certainly one of the earliest Christian hymns. And on it goes. You know, when we're singing hymns or songs, when we use liturgy, spoken prayers that are written by somebody else that we speak out loud together, when we are reminded of God's love in the bread and the wine, when we meet with God's people in a place like this, at a time like this, God can speak to us. God can speak through corporate worship. God can speak through distractions. We might not think of that as a place God can speak because distractions knock us off course, don't they? They knock us off where we want to be. Well, let's consider Jesus, which is always a good thing to do. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And the daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus was sent initially to the lost sheep of Israel. And this woman comes to him as a distraction. She's not one of the lost sheep of Israel. 
And the disciples, did you notice, tried to usher her away. Stop distracting Jesus. Let him get on with what he's meant to be doing. But Jesus' words, and if we had longer, we would go into that, aren't as rude as they first appear, because what he's trying to do is get her to express the faith that he knows is in her. And he allows the distraction to engage him in the work of healing, even outside the bounds of where he, his disciples told him he was called to. You're here for the lost sheep of Israel. No, well, I am, says Jesus, but I'm also here for her. The person at the robot when you're hurrying to work. The crying baby, the blaring car alarm. What might God say through the distraction? God can speak through prophetic words and wisdom and knowledge. We think of the lists of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 and other places in the New Testament. Let me give you just one example, I think, which I've probably mentioned before, but it, it was significant for me. At the beginning of considering whether I was going to be ordained, so this was in the mid-90s sometime, um, The process was going very quickly. For a lot of people, it's a difficult process, but for me, it was quite a simple process. And I said to Bev, we were dating at the time, just before I got on a plane to go to America to visit my sister for the first time there, I said to Bev, this feels like it's moving too quickly. It's unnerving. It's too easy. Visited my sister, went to her church where they knew nothing about me, and they'd never met me before. At the end of the service, I was sitting there. Uh, A woman who I didn't know turned out to be the pastor's wife, came to me and said, can I pray with you? So I said, of course, that'd be lovely. I didn't tell her anything about myself. And then, after praying, she said, David, I just think God is saying that you feel uncomfortable with the speed at which things are moving, but God wants to say it's exactly in his time. And it doesn't have to be about ordination. It could be about your work. And God can speak through silence. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, stressed out Elijah, suicidal, standing on the mountainside, earthquake, wind, fire, shattering rocks, burning up the physical creation around him, threatening to destroy him. But God wasn't to be found that day for Elijah in those things. God was to be found instead in the still, small voice of calm. Or as one translation I, found, I looked at this week says it, the sound of sheer silence. And that's not so much about the words of God. It's not listening so much for a voice or a prompting or a hunch. It's just about stilling our busyness. It's about stilling our own words in order just to be more aware of God and letting him shape us, to to centre ourselves on his love, on Jesus, on him, and allow that to shape us, to allow ourselves to remember that God is God and we are smaller than God and that we need to be still, as somebody said earlier, in his presence. So I try and take a couple of moments of stillness, of quiet, when I sit there before services. I try and allow space for silence in our services. Because sometimes we just need to be still. There's so many more things I could say. It's important, though, that we learn to evaluate what we think God may be saying. 
And the way churches have historically done this is three or fourfold. To use, and there's a lot I could say about this again, but to use scripture, the Bible, reason and tradition and also experience. Scripture, does it match up? Does what I think God may be saying to me through these different ways match up with how I understand scripture which points us to Jesus? Does this sound like God? Reason, does it actually make sense? Tradition meaning not, is it traditional, but tradition is it, does it kind of fit with God as the church has historically understood God? Not that we can't arrive at a different way, a new way of understanding something, but it can't be this kind of um, gravitational leap to what from one thing to another and there'd be no connection between. It's, it's, it's got to be some kind of coherence, that's the right word I think, coherence with how God, we have understood God over 2,000 years. And experience. Does this fit with the God I've experienced before? That's how, for example, the gift of the Holy Spirit seems to be understood at Pentecost. And Peter stands up and preaches, what you've experienced is God and that fits with scripture and reason and tradition. And he you can go to Peter's sermon on Pentecost and understand it that way. And we have the community of faith also. So if you think God has spoken something to you, don't sit with it in isolation. Go to someone you trust. Go to, come to me. Go to a spiritual director, an experienced Christian friend, and say, does this sound like God to you? Or have I eaten too much cheese? You know, we all have our own natural way we hear God best. You are made in the image of God, and you're not made in the image of God exactly like I am. You will hear God in, most easily in different ways to me. And that's good. That's good. And you can also try and branch out into other ways. If you've never tried sitting in silence before, try doing it. If you've never watched a film wondering what God might say to you through it, try doing that. For example. So I want you to take some silence just to reflect on those two questions for a moment. How do you most easily hear God? If we could have the last slide, please. Rachel. How do you most he- easily hear? Oh, I spelt hear wrong. Oh. Sorry. How do you most easily hear God? And how else would you like to learn to hear God? Just take some quiet. And if you're taking notes, you can write about it. Just take a a few moments of quiet to begin considering those questions.